Good morning. We are soldiering along in our sermon series on Mark's gospel, and we've, we've come now to the final week of Jesus' life. Um, you might remember the story, we skipped over a few passages, but Jesus, after uh, meeting blind Bartimaeus and traveling up to Jerusalem, has, has, has entered into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, triumphantly to great fanfare and recognition in a way that would imply that he is the king of God's people. He has been in the temple very early on and he drove out the money changers and those who would make God's house a place of business. And now he's back in the temple teaching the disciples and the crowds, confronting the Pharisees, the scribes, and the religious leaders of the day. And it is in here, in this location, in the temple, that we need to understand the passage we have this morning. Because it makes the most sense in this context. The context of the temple and everything it meant to the Jewish people of Jesus' day. You see, the temple was not just a place of worship. The temple represented God's very presence on earth. God dwelt in the the innermost part of the temple in the Holy of Holies. It was a place where God met His people, where God's people came face to face with their God. And it was a place where this relationship between God and His people was defined and built. So when we look at the temple, when we consider the people there and how they're interacting with God and with each other, we get a glimpse into the very nature of the relationship between God and His people. Who is God? Who are His people? How are they related? These questions can be answered in the context of this temple worship and these temple interactions. And these are precisely the questions that Jesus is asking with His disciples. Right? They're there. They're in the temple. They're people watching. How many of you like to go and and sit and people watch? The airport's a great place for that. Apparently the temple is as well, because they're people watching, and Jesus is using the people he sees as illustrations of the relationship that God has with his people. And so in our passage this morning, there are three characters that we observe, the religious leaders, the scribes, there in the first part, and then some wealthy people who are giving money into the offering box, and then finally, a lonely, poor widow who gives everything she has. What does Jesus say about these folks and their relationship with God? Well, the first people we encounter are the scribes there in verses 38 to 39. If you have a Bible or if you have a Bible app on your phone, um, I suggest uh, that you pull it up and and follow along. We're in Mark chapter 12, beginning at verse 38. Um, You should follow along because I don't want you to just believe me. I want you to, to test it and see if what I'm saying is accurate with what the Bible is saying. Verses 38 to 39. In his teaching, Jesus said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like the greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts 
who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. They will receive the greater condemnation. An amazing moral judgment on the scribes because, right, these are the holy ones. These are the ones, the ones with the most ornate robes, the ones who receive the most lavish praise, who have the front row seats. I see there's not very many of you here this morning. (laughs) These are the ones. And yet at the same time, they devour widows. They take advantage of widows. And they make long prayers. And and Mark goes out of his his way. He says they do these for pretense. You know what that means for pretense? It, it means to make something appear true that is not. Make something appear true that is not. Everything you see about these religious leaders is not true of who they actually are. They make themselves look holy at the expense of others. What might these folks tell us about the relationship between God and His people? If, if this is true temple interaction and true temple worship, what does that say about God? Well, it would seem, if, if these were the ones, that God favors them because He favors outward appearance. He favors those who can play the part, those who enjoy the attention they get from, from apparently being more holy than everyone else. Is that how it works? Of course not. Jesus makes their place before God very clearly known. Theirs is the greater condemnation. These scribes do not reflect an accurate relationship between God and His people. Indeed, they're leading others astray. And any reward they receive is a reward they're receiving at that very moment. Because in the world to come, they receive, Jesus says, the greater condemnation. Condemnation. Now, the second characters we see, um, Jesus calls them rich people. Or Mark, Mark refers to them as rich people, putting their coins in the box. Let's read on now, uh, verse 41. Jesus and his disciples sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. And many rich people put in large sums. Now, no doubt, they, some of them made a large show about it, but others might have done this very quietly um, and just, just very, very quietly slipped in a very large donation. Maybe some of them were wearing the long robes described in verse 38, but others might have just looked like um, normal, wealthy people who were quietly giving to the operations of the temple. And indeed, it was a significant help. These are very large sums of money that these wealthy people are putting in. Jesus sees this, and you can imagine perhaps the disciples looking on in awe, thinking if only we could do that, if only, only we could be that pious and that righteous and, and that holy to give like that. But I think Jesus is doubtful. In fact, I'm sure of it. Now, interestingly enough, he does not offer a moral judgment, right? On the, the scribes, there's a very clear moral judgment on who they were and what they were doing. But, but not on the folks putting large sums of money in the offering box. Not necessarily a moral judgment. And yet, at the same time, 
their faith is lacking. And Jesus calls them out. Their faith is lacking compared to the character that will follow. Yes, they give lavishly, but they're giving out of comfort. They're giving out of their abundance. This money that they're putting in is not a sacrifice. They might be perfectly faithful, wonderful people, but they are not sacrificing in their giving. And Jesus notes that, and he compares them to this character that follows. That brings us then now to this widow. Right behind the line of rich givers comes a poor widow. Her clothes probably are tattered and ragged. She's probably illiterate, has very little means. You can imagine coming dirty with a dirty face and looking very lowly. And what happens? A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. A penny. You probably couldn't even hear them hit the bottom, or if you did, it was a, a tinny clink as they, as they bounced around in the money box. Two small light coins. But Jesus sees this, and He quickly calls His disciples over. Come here, disciples, listen. He called His disciples, and He said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of those who are contributing to the offering box. She's put in more. The disciples are like, no, she hasn't. That was not more money. But it was more. It was greater. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had. All that she had to live on. She put in everything. This widow more accurately shows us the relationship between God and his people. Of all of the characters in this passage, this widow gives us the truest insight, the clearest window into how God relates to his people. Is this not the embodiment of everything Jesus has been teaching since Peter confessed him to be the Messiah all those chapters ago? Anyone who would come after me, Jesus says, must deny himself and take up his cross. In the kingdom of God, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. To the rich young ruler, Jesus said, go, sell everything you have and give to the poor and follow me. Just verses ahead of this, we hear the great summary of the law. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind. All of you to God. And here we have this widow embodying all of this over and against the wealthy and the powerful in Jerusalem. And Jesus is calling her out. She's the one. She gets it. This woman has given more than all of them. Now, it's worth pausing for a moment and asking yourself a diagnostic question. Just to be clear, this is a diagnostic question for you and your heart, not your neighbors. You're not asking this question of the person sitting next to you or even your spouse. You're asking it of yourself. How do you... 
fit into this picture. What crowd are you in? If Jesus was there and you were there at the temple and he was watching you, what line would you be in? seems to me that 99% of us, myself included, would most readily, even if it was reluctantly, would, if we're honest, would most readily identify either with the scribes or the wealthy citizens. Often we're seeking to impress God and impress our friends with our outward appearance. And perhaps even more frequently, we're giving of ourselves only when it's convenient and not a burden. Only when it's not necessarily a sacrifice. The self-denying humility and the reckless generosity of this widow are foreign in our culture. Even in the culture of our church, it's a foreign thing. And we like to, and we easily come up with all sorts of objections to this kind of offering, right? We can look at the widow and we can say, well, this is an unnecessary gift. She doesn't have to do it. This is a free will offering. This isn't, this isn't a sacrifice for sin. This is just somebody giving to support the work of the temple. It's unnecessary. Or we might say, well, it's useless. Those two coins are useless compared to the great expense of the temple and the great gifts that have gone before. Or we might even say, isn't it a little presumptuous? Is she not tempting God? She's given away everything that she has. She's going to be a burden to others. And I think if we're honest, we realize that many of us make these same excuses day in and day out. It's unnecessary. God requires nothing of me but faith. It's useless. I can't begin to give enough. My meager offering is worth nothing compared to the great expense. Or perhaps most of us might think it's simply presumptuous. Doesn't God want me to plan ahead? Wouldn't He want me to be sure my needs were taken care of first? That, that, that I wasn't going to be a burden to others first? And, and then when there's something left or a little extra, then I'll give. Now it's easy not easy, but we can readily see how these objections are made when it comes to money and finances, but they apply to generosity in every single area of our lives. Our generosity of time, our generosity of our gifts to ministry, even our generosity, emotional generosity invested in our relationships, even in our marriages. Too readily we come to these things and we object, it's too much it's too costly. It can't possibly help. I will risk too much if I'm too generous. But frankly, if these objections are indicative of your reasons for being generous, it is going to hinder your relationship with God. It can make you bitter as if God owes you something. It can make you frustrated if your generosity is not being used in the way you think it should be used, it can make you self-reliant and self-dependent. Look, let me take care of myself. I don't want to depend on others. Now, perhaps at this point, you're feeling convicted, burdened, perhaps that you cannot possibly do what this passage is suggesting. 
If that's you, I would say, good. God has you right where he wants you. He wants us to recognize our failure of generosity. He wants us um, to cry out. Do you remember when the disciples watched Jesus' interaction with a rich young ruler um, and he, he left away despondent? They cried out to Jesus. They said, who can be saved? Who can do this? It is impossible. And Jesus says, yes, it is. It's impossible with man. But with God, all things are possible. God wants us to realize that we are just as impoverished as this widow, that we need a Savior, that we need help. And what we realize then is that this reckless generosity of the widow points to the reckless generosity of our Savior. The passage is not about the widow. The passage is about Jesus. And if we consider the temple as a place where we see how God's people relate to God, then we see in this widow a picture of a God who gives himself recklessly and sacrificially for his people. A God who values humility and heartfelt faith over pomp and circumstance. When we look at this widow, we realize that her actions are pointing us ahead. They're pointing us down the road a few chapters in Mark's gospel when Jesus himself would give sacrificially for his people. Jesus offered everything he had. He offered his life. He offered even his status at the right hand of God for the sake of sinful men and women like you and me. He gave himself up that we might be reconciled with God. That because we fail time and time again in our generosity, we fail time and time again in, in living up to what God has for us. Because we put on the righteousness of, of, of robes and outward appearance trying to look like something we are not. We have failed so often that we need a Savior who is lavishly generous and gives out of his abundance. That was Christ. He gave himself sacrificially for his people. That our reconciliation to God would not be on the basis of our piety or our generosity or our righteousness, but on the righteousness and generosity and piety of Jesus alone. And so that's how it works. Jesus gave himself first. He didn't ask us. He didn't say, hey, if I do this, if I die for you, will you come and follow me? He didn't. He just gave because that's who he is. He gave lovingly and sacrificially. And because he's given to us, we can give of ourselves. We can give freely and joyfully and without burden because Christ has already done it first. We can be risky with our generosity Because Christ has been recklessly generous himself. And that's my prayer this morning. That we would know the love and generosity of Christ. And in so doing our hearts would be melted and transformed. To give that recklessly and generously to others. Let us pray.